You know, if a person turns on their television or their TV monitor or their computer monitor while they're supposed to be at work during the afternoon on any weekday, what is on there, especially network television? Don't answer because I'm going to give you the answer. I don't want you to be, I've got to get this out of the way. I think I'm going to move today, so I'm going to make sure this stuff's out of the way. Uh, What's there? What do you see? I'll give you the answer. Courtroom TV. Okay, I'm, I mean, it has gone from Judge Wapner, and it has gone downhill. There is Judge Judy, Judge whatever. I mean, they're all over the place, and they're all dressed up in, in robes, and they have a place where they sit. The Most of them sit behind a bench, and they normally have a big bailiff that, you know, it's supposed to look intimidating. And I, one thing I do like, they, they carry this gavel, and it's... Man, I'd like to beat on one of those things someday. That it just sounds like fun. But they always have, for sure, entertainment purposes, I'm sure. They have people, the litigants, they come in and they state their cases, and they always seem to kind of get out of control. They can't... I, just, I have watched one or two of these shows, I, I admit. And I why don't you just be quiet? Why... Why are you opening your mouth right now? Or why are you? Okay, I understand why you're... Stop! It gets, starts to get out of control. And then what's the judge do? The judge takes the gavel and it goes, bangs it on, I don't know, on the desk, on the little wooden piece that they bang. Bang, 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 bang! Order. I only say that because we as humans, we love Order. We do. We like it when there. Both of we like it when there is order. When we can make sense out of something. When we know what's coming. Well, this morning is our final Sunday of in the message series called "Gifted to Serve," and it's a series that's come from First Corinthians chapters twelve through fourteen, where the Apostle Paul and I say this very, very kindly wrote to a very dysfunctional church, answering questions that particular assembly had in a very cosmopolitan city named Corinth, which I would see it's almost like it would be like our Los Angeles, maybe our Bakersfield. I mean, things are were then as they are now. He wrote them about disunity, sexual immorality, singleness and marriage, liberty, the Lord's Supper, the resurrection of the dead, and what we've been studying, spiritual gifts. And speaking of the spiritual gifts, and because repetition is the mother of learning, the gifts found in 1 Corinthians 12 were as follow. Utterance of wisdom, The gift of knowledge, knowing things ahead of time, knowing just what to say, spiritual knowledge. Faith, healings, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, tongues and their interpretations. In Romans 12, we have more spiritual gifts that are given. The gifts of service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leadership, and mercy. And again, my favorite, the Apostle Peter, he distilled it down to two things. It's you're either serving or you're either speaking. But all of them, they're gifts. They're gifts that God has given to his church. But as we learn from what? Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, none of these gifts no matter how eloquently they're used, how great that you're able to serve someone, how much money you give, or how you're able to pick someone up, if it's not given in love, it's what? Useless. It's useless. Well, what were the the gift's ultimate purpose? 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tells us, to each... That means each one of the believers, each Christian to you. 
has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's not for us. It's for those next to you. It's to build up the church. Well, I told you that the church was dysfunctional in Corinth. How dysfunctional was it? When we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll, I'll read to you just what I think Paul meant because he said, I hate to come, I hate to show up and this to be happening. He said, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Wow. That's the Corinthian church. That's people. The Corinthians simply were out of control. They were out of control. The opposite of what God is, who the God of the universe is. He is a God of order. A God of order. And because he is a God of order, not of disorder, he should and needs and must be worshipped in a way that is orderly. Now, I'm not saying, please do not... When we think of order, we think of a child sitting at a desk like this. No, orderly, by orderly, I mean very purposeful. I'm not saying boring. I'm not saying lifeless, but orderly. Well, you go, well, Danny, what, what are you talking about God being a God of order? Well, let me, let me put it this way. Let me just explain to you just a little bit how God is orderly. Did you wake up this morning with a sunrise? And you will wake up, if God willing, that you live that long with a sunset. In Genesis 1, God created light and separates it from the darkness. That's order. That's something we can depend on. Still speaking to the creation, in Proverbs it is written, when he assigned the sea to its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, it is where it is supposed to be. He has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, Job wrote. Everything. It's in order. In Psalm 8, the Lord, Lord has ordered whatever passes along the paths of the seas, the current of the ocean. He's ordered it. What about the four seasons? We mentioned it earlier. Joel mentioned earlier fall, a beautiful two weeks in Bakersfield that we have a fall. Without order, limits, parameters, think with me, even something as simple as a swimming pool, something as simple as a swimming pool, if it does not have everything done correctly and in order, can turn into a green algae mess where only mosquitoes love to tread. Think of something with disorder. Bakersfield traffic at a red light. Can you see the difference why we need order? God is a God of order, but concerning His church, how it should function, how it should, and how we should relate to each other when we gather. That's what Paul was writing about here. How we gather, how we conduct a worship service, and how we use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. There's definite order there too, especially concerning exercising spiritual gifts when we gather to worship. 
So let's look at verses 20 through 40 in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning to understand what kind of order is being called for, especially concerning corporate worship. Now, it's broken into two. I don't have a three-point sermon today. It's a two-point. I know for some of you, you'll get that joke. But first of all, it's the importance of order regarding unbelievers in the church, and then the importance of order regarding believers in the church. Well, first, regarding order because of unbelievers. What am I talking about? Those who attend or are attending a church who have not come to Christ, who might be checking it out, coming because, well, your friend invited you, or you're a child who has not made a choice yet, or maybe even a, an adult who has come to church for years and not bowed a knee yet. What about the order concerning tongues? Now, remember, we're talking about the first century, or the order concerning tongues. Why would it need to be ordered? This is because of the need for both the pre-Christian and the Christian to what? To understand what is being spoken? What is being spoken from a pulpit? From Colleen when she came up here and told you about growth groups? Or when Joel is sitting at the microphone and sing, saying what he wants you to know, what we sing? We sing in an orderly way so we understand. We need to understand the ways of the Lord. Let's look at verse 20. Brothers and sisters... Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we did not study this, but Paul had compared members of this body to infants. You're like infants. I want to be teaching you good food. I want you to have a steak dinner in the Word, but you, all I can give you is milk. Because you're not grown, because you're still behaving in a childish way. In the same book, in chapter 13, we studied that a few weeks ago, where he contrasted the difference between an adolescent and a grown adult. A child acts like, well, a child. Immature, always for themselves. An adult looks at this and says, what can I do to serve the Lord and what can I do to serve those around me? They think of things in an adult-like way, in a mature-like way. The charge is very clear. Stop being immature. But be, also be immature in evil. He tells us that in that verse. Be immature. What does it mean? Don't be a professional. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we all know people who are very professional in doing bad things. Let it go away. Let it go away. Be mature in your thinking. Grow up. The Corinthians, they were treating the gifts of God like toys instead of tools. They were playing with the gifts instead of using the gifts. Now we come to what seems to be a paradoxical message. Are tongues a sign for unbelievers or not? Because, because in verse 22, it says that they are. Then in 23, it says they're not. Thanks, Paul. You're helping me out here. And the same seems true for prophecy. First, he says it's not for unbelievers. Then in verses 24 and 25, which we'll get to, he says that they're for believers. Make up your mind, Paul. What is it? It's all four. It is all four. Let me read the next three verses, and I hope that we'll make sense of it. Beginning in verse 21. In the law it is written. The law is speaking of the Old Testament. In the law it is written, by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. 
Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. When writing verse 21, Paul was loosely paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. I read those last week. We looked at them last week, but we're not going to go there today. But simply what it was being said, God's warning his people in the days of Isaiah that if you do not turn to me, follow the covenant that you have made and I have made with you, you are soon going to hear foreign tongues speaking in your beloved city. And they did hear foreign tongues speaking in their beloved city, the Babylonians. But the prophecy also had future ramifications. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. When we saw the day of Pentecost, when God said, I am going to pour out my spirit on you. And Jesus said before he left, who is also God, Stay in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And what happened? They were praying, and 120 of them were in a room, and the Spirit of God came upon them, and they started speaking in other languages, known languages. And the people heard all these languages, the gift and the promises and the glory of God in their own language. I could have been a Persian in Jerusalem, and I would have heard it. I could be an English person in Jerusalem, and I would have heard it. It was a warning to those who had crucified Jesus. You've turned from me, and now I'm going to turn from you. But it also was a sign to those who were called by Christ to turn to him. They heard and believed. Some heard and said, they're drunk. Can you see the difference? But what about everyone speaking foreign languages in the church? Do they do that all at once now? Yes, I've, I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen on television where a group of ch a church gathers together and it goes into, I would, I would call it a rave. That's the easiest thing for me to say. It's, they're, they're out of control. They're speaking language and no one can make sense of that. If there's no order in your service concerning tongues, I'll let the Scriptures speak for themselves. Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? You people are cray-cray. What's going on? Why? Because there's no order. There's no understanding. There's also importance of order regarding unbelievers concerning prophecy, verses 24 and 25. Well, even though prophecy builds up the church, it is also vital so unbelievers, those who are pre-Christian, can come to Christ. They have to understand the gospel. We don't believe in a myth. We don't believe in faith. We believe in Jesus. That's our faith, our faith in Christ. It pricks their hearts. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. They hear the truth. And with God's Spirit, they're convicted. Well, when the truths of God are understandable and comprehensible, four things take place. 
A person is convicted, exposed, prostrated, and then converted. And you're going, what did you just say? Well, let me go with that. God's truth, it convicts a man or a woman of their sin. They see and what they are, they are then, it is what they do. They see sin and they go, oh my goodness, that's wrong. And they see how they've offended God. God's truth convicts. Speaking of a man named Alcibiades, Alcibiades, I'm going to screw that up even more if I say that. He was a guy that lived in Greece, and he was the darling of Athens. He lived in the time of Socrates. Now, I'm not building up Socrates. I'm just explaining what this guy said. And he walked around with Socrates, and he said, Socrates, I hate you. Now, what's, why would Socrates, well, what in the world, what do you hate me about? I hate you because every time I meet you, you make me see who I am. Wow. You as a Christian, you who has Christ's spirit living inside of you, do you make people nervous when you walk in the room with them? Do people change their behavior because you actually talk with them and they know who you are? They're convicted. The woman of Samaria, in shame and amazement, she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. The first thing the message of God does is to make a man or a woman realize that they are a sinner. The second thing it does is a man or a woman comes under judgment, they're exposed. They see that they must answer for what they have done. So far, he may have lived a life that is oblivious. They're happy. I'm going through life, and I have not a care in the world until all of a sudden they see what God is or who God is and what he demands. And then they see that the day that they are living, the day that they are alive is quickly coming to an end. And they see God for who he is. It shows the man the secrets of his heart. And the last thing we do face that we don't like to face is our heart. As a proverb has said, there are none so blind as those who will not see, refuse to see. The Christian message compels a man to that searing, it's humiliating honesty, which they have to face themselves. They're convicted, they're exposed. Third, the message brings a man or a woman to their knees before God. They are prostrated. All Christianity begins with a true realization of who you are before Christ. You're dead in your sins. There is nothing good in us. Nothing whatsoever. The gateway to Christianity, the great gateway to faith is so low, careful how I'm saying this, it is so low that only we can get there by being on our knees. We can't walk in. We have to come understanding who we are on the ground. Yes, God, you who are who you are. When a man has faced has faced God and faced himself, all that's left for him to do is to kneel and pray. Like the tax collector in Luke, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not looking at the other and saying, I'm better than them. 
I'm better than them. Isn't God lucky to have me? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What happens then? You turn from that sin, you believe, you repent, you believe, and you're justified, and you're saved. That's the reason for importance of order regarding unbelievers in the church. Now we'll see the importance of order regarding believers in the church. We look at these final verses and we might wonder, really, first century, really, this in 2021, really? I mean, their church services, we'll soon see, there were nothing like a church service that we have today, not saying that their church services were wrong. They were great. Not saying our church services are wrong. They're great. But why are the problems, why are we studying the problems from the first century? Because many of them are still here with us in this 21st. We're going to enter into a worship service of the first century And it would be very different than we witness now. For one, they didn't have this part of the Scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, and that is still Scripture today. That's when when they are speaking of the Scriptures. They are talking about the Old Testament. They had the apostles who were given the full counsel of God, who came in, who gave the, the truths of God, who wrote the Scriptures down, who were sent by Jesus to evangelize the world. There were people in the first century, like there are now, who lied, who told, who gave false gospel, false gospel. They had to be checked. They had to be understood. How do we know what's truth or error? Well, the apostles taught that. At the time of this writing, at the time of 1 Corinthians, all the sign gifts were still in effect. Every single one of them. Well, how could you know what was true? By checking it with a prophet. We don't have those today. We have the Scriptures. Let's begin with the importance of order concerning tongues in corporate worship. I've, ordered, I've argued and that tongues are a language that are spoken by an ethnic group somewhere in the world that is unknown to the speaker. They have not studied the language. And it could be a Korean, Spanish, Russian, Greek, whatever. And when the Spirit gives the child of God utterance, they speak of the marvelous works of God. So we see entering into a service, they come in, and verse 26 says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Look at that again before we move on. Verse 26, these are not passive worshipers. They are not consumers. They come to worship the Lord, and they are planning on being a part of that worship because they have the Spirit of God working in them. They want to speak. They want to, they want to tell what God has been doing for them. What's Paul say? Let all things be done for building up. Now, could you imagine how long a worship service would be if each one of you had a hymn, had a psalm, or had a teaching? You think I go long. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. 
But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Pretty straightforward. We probably have 100 people in this room. Could you imagine if everyone burst out in a tongue? To be disorganized, to say the least. Why do we, why was it, if it's done, why was it done here? It should be done in order to build each other up. It's a constant theme. We're here for them. I'm here for you. You're here for me. You're here for the person next to you who's sitting behind you and in front of you. And instead of looking and sounding like a rave, it should be orderly and peaceful. Now, is the verse still? I don't see the verse. Look at verse, uh, excuse me, verse 28. This is a, a very important thing that we must understand this morning because it's spoken of three times. Notice the command to keep silent in church. This is important because it shows that people can and should exercise restraint even when they might truly have the spiritual gift. Things that I have seen in a charismatic church, people barking, people laughing hysterically. It's not order. And God is a God of order. The Spirit of God desires order. So concerning a Christian worship gathering, at most, only three are allowed to speak in tongues, and only if there is an interpreter to allow the words to be what? Understood. Well, if there's no benefit of the tongue being spoken, keep silent. Paul now addresses the importance of order concerning prophecy in corporate worship. Now, here, too, we have something that seems very strange to our 21st century corporate worship service. So let's look at verse 29 and following. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. There's that word again. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. These are people who are hearing from the Lord himself. This would almost be a, a preacher who is, it's not preaching, but it is preaching. Give way. Give way. What can we learn from this? Thinking of another person as being more important than yourself, more significant. I need to hear what Connie has to say. I need to hear what Larry has to say. I need to hear what Greg Ince has to say back there. They're important. I'm going to quote Warren Wiersbe. Wiersbe is very helpful here when he writes, Our public meetings today are more formal than those of the early church, so it's not likely that we need to worry about the order of service. But in our more informal meetings, we need to consider one another and maintain order. I recall being in a, in a testimony meeting where a woman took 40 minutes telling a boring exper experience and as a result destroyed the spirit of the meeting. Man, I would hate to have been there. He goes on. He said, Evangelist D.L. Moody was leading a service and asked a man to pray. Taking advantage of this opportunity, the man prayed on and on and on and on. Where Moody finally said, as this man continues and finishes his prayer, may we all sing a hymn? Can you believe that? 
Let us sing a hymn. Those who are in charge of public meetings need to have discernment and courage. Close quote. I'd like to highlight two more things before we move on. Notice again the command to be silent. In the original language, Koine Greek, and every instance in the New Testament, it is a word that never refers to being totally silent. Then why do they say that? It means to remain quiet as another speaks. I still have my vocal cords. I'm still able to to speak if I want to speak. But why don't I? Because the Lord tells me I shouldn't and also to defer for the other person. And lastly, God is not a God of confusion but of peace. I say again, he is a God of order. Okay, I've been trying to bug off on this one the whole week. The importance of order concerning women in the church. You know, there are times that you would just like to just skip a verse or two in the Bible. And I asked, I didn't ask Tom, Tom Funkhauser, he's uh, the chair of our stewardship. I was going to ask him to put plexiglass up here because of what might happen. I also was joking with my wife and Nicole uh, McCoy about how I was to read this particular verse, and I think it, it's, I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. At first glance, this can be construed as being very politically incorrect. And again, I'm going on vacation for a couple weeks, so forward your complaints to the elders. They meet Tuesday night, and I'm sure they'd love to discuss this with you. It'd be easy and safe to interpret and teach the text to conform to our prejudices, would it not? But we are to conform to the scriptures and not make them to conform to society. The text is difficult beyond the obvious. Let me read it and then we'll see what it means for us today. Beginning at the second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, there are some difficulties, and here some of them are. Where I studied, say, there were at least 10 to 12 difficulties with this passage. Well, first of all, because of the content, especially in most recent years, some say that these verses weren't in the original texts. It's a convenient argument to avoid the issue because in every single early text, the text that my Bible is translated from. The text is here and in order. Some say that it's Paul prohibiting something that was very socially offensive at the time. Let's, let's, let's be good. We don't want to rile the, the Romans up or the Greeks up because we, we don't want to look bad. They already think badly of us as it is. That's one of the other reasons. Third, others say that this passage states that a woman should not have any leadership role in worship, period. I think you can kind of see that that's not my opinion because Colleen came up here and gave a very good, I would say, advertisement for growth groups. 
I see ladies up here singing. They are a part of that worship service. Here's what we do know. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, in this same book that you're reading, Paul permitted women to pray and to prophesy. And the assumption is that they are praying and prophesying in church. Did he forget what he'd just written? The obvious answer is no. So this instruction must apply in the immediate context of evaluating the prophetic messages. I'm sorry I'm reading this so I don't make sure I don't misquote. From other books in the New Testament, we are taught that the responsibility for doctrinal purity in the early church rested on the shoulders of men, the elders in particular. That's why we at Rosedale Bible Church have male elders. That's why you see a male preacher who preaches the word to you week in and week out. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Why do I say that and why do I push that so hard? Because Paul is appealing to the order of creation. It is what he appeals to. It is a continual, not cultural command. Now, when we look at this, well, submissiveness, what's that mean? It means to voluntarily sit under the authority. Now, before you go, Danny, you're, 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 name one person who was submissive when they might not, when it wasn't what was best for them. Jesus? Be very careful with how I speak this. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What did Christ pray on the, at the Garden of Gethsemane? If it is not your will, let, I, if it, I, I don't want to do this. But if it's your will, let your will be done. And he sat under the submission of the Father. This is not a cultural command that Paul gives. Understanding that this is how God has chosen how the church should operate. How the church should operate. I'm not talking about government. If we have a female president, more power to her. I'm not talking about business. A woman CEO, more power to you. You have, as, you have the ability. Do it. This is talking about the church. Historians Barton and Osborne tell us, and I quote, this explains, in the Greek culture, women were discouraged from saying anything in public, and they were certainly not allowed to confront or question men publicly. Apparently, some of the women who had become Christians thought that their Christian freedom gave them the right to question the men in public worship. This was causing division in the church. In addition, women of that day did not receive formal religious education, as did the men. The speaking, and in quotes, to which Paul referred to was inappropriate asking of questions that could disrupt the worship service or take it on a tangent. I like to call it a rabbit trail. Therefore, the women should be silent during the church meetings, not because they were never able to speak, but because they were not to speak out with questions that would be ineffective in edifying the entire church. If this is the case, and I believe it is, these women who were asking questions, apparently in a disruptive manner, were not only offensive, offensive socially, yes, they were offensive socially because it wasn't done in that culture, but that's not the point. They were distracting others, perhaps because of their off-subject comments, and they were being inconsiderate of others. The questions that they were asking, whatever they were, could easily be addressed at home, and Paul says that is where the discussion should be. 
Some suggest, and with very good reason, that the women Paul addresses were possibly the wives of the men who prophesied. Imagine how uncomfortable it would be for you or me if my wife was to get up and critique my sermon while all of you are in the room. It's about being considerate to others. And it is about being submissive. The last point that Paul addresses is the importance of order concerning obedience to the word. And that's what it all comes down to. Obedience. Paul now speaks forcefully, if it wasn't already. He speaks forcefully to the people of Corinth. What he knew, and they must have forgotten, that it was God who had chosen Paul as an apostle to take the good news of the gospel to people like them. He was given the authority by God the Father, by Jesus Christ through the Spirit to convey these truths. Verse 36 through the end of the chapter. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that he, that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. He's telling the truth. He has the authority to say it, and he has the authority to write it. If I say it, this is true. If anyone does not recognize this, He is not to be recognized. You're out. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This morning was all about how believers need to defer to each other concerning the gathering when we gather together in worship. And I hope that we can see that a body of Christ, the body of Christ, when we are truly led by the Spirit of God, that we will use the gifts that God has given us to build each other up. which ultimately means to be more like Christ, to make disciples. What can you do to begin to continue, to begin or to continue your use of gifts that the Spirit has given you? This whole time, we haven't talked about, oh, what's my spiritual gift? Oh, what is, I want to take a test. I want to know what, what I do well, what God has gifted me. That's not what this has been about. Because it's been about being obedient to the Lord and serving one another in love. Well, how can you begin or continue to use the gifts that God has given you? Pray that God will use you as a vessel for His glory. (laughs) I see Mary Lou and Jean and Lawrence down at the... Pray that God will use you where you're at. Williams, pray that God uses you. Elizabeth Williams, pray that God uses you wherever you are and wherever you go. Then begin to pray, begin praying at the same time. Pray for those around you because that's all part of it. Pray that God will use Jeanette and Bob and Margot and Jesse. Then the next thing, look for anybody that needs help. And then 
see if you can be a help to someone. That could be physically. It might be monetarily. But always prayerfully. Is there any area where you might be able to teach? We have, we have teachers out who go out every other week who are teaching right now. I think they do it to get out of the sermon. But they're teaching your, our children. Could you do that once a month? Could you do that once every six weeks? You might be gifted at it and you might not even know. It can be with children, it can be with youth, it can be adults. You won't know unless you try. Maybe you can give someone a, an attagirl or an attaboy verbally or with a card. Maybe it's just you notice someone working for the Lord and you tell them thank you. I'll finish today by quoting a charismatic author who I respect very highly. He's simply written, and this is concerning, what is my spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? What do I? He simply writes, if we spend less time searching to identify our spiritual gift or gifts and more time actually praying and giving and helping and teaching and serving and exhorting those around us, the likelihood greatly increases that we will walk headlong into our gifting without ever knowing what happened. God has truly gifted you to serve. May we joyfully, may we joyfully do that in love. Lord God, we thank you. Help us to live lives using the gifts that you have given us. May we seek to love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And we also love our neighbor as ourself. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.